Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome Paul Sponsia today. He's CEO of the IT company. What I'd like to start with, Paul, get to know a little bit more about you, what makes you you, and how did you get here? I guess the the arch of the story, um, I'll be 50 years old this year. I was uh, originally born in Greenville, Tennessee, the only Greenville in the in the 50 states that has an E between the N and the V. <laughs> um Grew up in northwest Florida, so uh, moved when I was about nine to the uh, Fort Walton Beach Destin area. Um, that was a big piece of my life. Like I was, uh, I was actually fairly upset. Um, had a lot of family and friends, and kind of uprooting a fourth or fifth grader was sort of a, um, you know, felt like a traumatic moment um, at at uh, at nine or ten years old. But it was actually a, it was a fantastic, fantastic thing. It, I think it shaped me in a lot of ways, um, brought me out of my shell. I was a pretty quiet kid, forced me to make friends and do things that were uncomfortable for me, and uh, honestly had a really idyllic, like, I think back, I mean, I just, I had a great upbringing, you know, I had great parents, Um, they loved me really well, they were present, my dad was older, so he was retired, and uh, so, like, my dad was, like, home, you know, like he made me breakfast and like did projects with me and, um, you know, and stuff like that. And he was a hard worker. My dad fought in World War II. He was born in the Great Depression. Um, he was the youngest of a lot of kids of an immigrant uh, Sicilian family. And so he was always a guy that valued hard work and honesty. And um, he was a well-respected um kind of blue collar leader of a plant in Greenville. Um, like I remember even when we moved to Florida, like he got bored and went back to work. So I have a funny story of, um, that was a Hardee's that we stopped at, uh, in high school. And I, I have a, I think it was a four in the morning Hardee's run. Uh, and my dad was in the window and he was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, ah, you know, getting a biscuit. Wrong place to be. <laughs> Just getting a biscuit. Um, but yeah, so grew up in Northwest Florida, really loved it. Um, great school system, wonderful memories of high school. And, um, and again, you know, I think a lot of the shaping, uh, for me was shaped by those early years of like having to break out of my shell. I think I always, it's interesting. Now I look back, you know, back then I, I really wanted to be uh, either an architect or a lawyer, which is a weird thing to think of two different things. And, and when I got out of co- high school, I I started down a track of becoming an attorney. And, uh, and now I kind of see all that, like the architecture was the creativity. Like I love to design things and solve problems through designing things, whether that's drawing something or that's solving a technical problem or a business problem. And the legal, I think the attorney side was I liked, um, I liked the idea of um, researching something to get the facts and being able to utilize those facts to either answer a question or solve a problem or defend a position. Um, those are all things that just, I don't, I don't know that when I was 15 or 17 that I was thinking that way, but looking back on it, it, it makes sense as to why I was gravitating to those two different categories. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the early, that's the early, early childhood story. And then I moved here, I moved back to Tennessee when I was 20. 
And um, the mountains kind of always called to me. I always loved the idea of Four Seasons, and I loved the idea of um, kind of the adventure of mountains. And I, I love there was something to me that was always really spiritual about being in the mountains and very refreshing and refining to my soul. So um, I kind of had this longing to come back to Tennessee and, and be a part of that and be a part of that culture and kind of camp and hike and, and just sort of ingrain myself in that, that culture, um, and, and get away to the mountains. So that was what brought me back. Yeah. The mountains are very important in, in my life too. My mom grew up in Virginia, that East Tennessee area. Like you said, I think spiritual is a great word for that. Mm-hmm. You said something earlier making a decision what shapes your making decisions yeah i uh i think i shared with you before like this is a a category that i think is a is maybe bigger than a lot of times um we bigger than we think uh because decisions can shape generations um for good or for bad you know and so i always i kind of go back to my grandfather who i didn't know my grandfather was had passed away my dad's dad before i was born he died um fairly young um kind of crazy to think about my father was fighting in world war 2 he was overseas for 5 years and his dad died and he didn't get to come home you know and so that's like such a crazy thing to think about like you would lose a parent and you can't come be a part of that that process but so as I, you know, as I think back about my grandfather, the what I know of him, his name was Giovanni, and um, my son Alex, my first son, his middle name is named after him, and um, he, he was very poor. He was an orphan. He was being raised by his uh, uncle, and he had a friend. He was in Sicily. He had a friend who came to the United States. His name was Andrew D'Amico, and Andrew came to Brooklyn, and they stayed in touch. However, you stayed in touch in the 1800s. I guess you wrote letters, and they stayed in they stayed in touch. And uh, as I understand the story, Andrew eventually convinced my grandfather to come to the United States in the late 1800s. And I think about like that's a that was one big decision to leave everything you knew to travel across the world to this new country, you know, it's still at this point when America was barely a hundred years old and, um, and kind of try something new with the idea of a better life, a better opportunity. And I don't know what he was thinking. I mean, I don't know if he was thinking like, this is a better opportunity for me, for my, for the future of my family. I I didn't get a chance to ask him that, but it definitely created a trajectory, um, that changed the, the course of generations you know my they he eventually met my grandmother who happened to be his best friend's wife's sister so he married his best friend's wife's sister and uh, they ended up having I think 11 kids uh, my father being the youngest the youngest living he did have a, a, br- a brother who passed away at birth and uh, and if I just take my father and our you know my brothers and sister like you know, by the world's standards and in a, even in America, like we've all gone on to be high wage earners, own our own businesses. You know, um, many, uh, two of my brothers have advanced college degrees and, 
you know, I just look at that. I'm like, you know, from abject poverty um, as an orphan in Sicily riding in steerage on a ship, which if you don't know what steerage is, it's the bottom of the ship basically with the livestock, to, you know, really just two generations later. You know, I'm the, I'm, two, I'm two generations from my grandfather. All of us, you know, um, living very comfortable lives um, in America, um, you know, healthy children, grandchildren, like it's just, so making a decision is a big deal, you know, and, and I think that it's like thinking about it from the perspective of that decision can set uh, families off on a completely different trajectory, you know, and you see people who sadly may fall into um, making bad decisions, whether it's addiction, you know, they, they choose a path of uh, something that leads to addiction or um, sometimes it's just mental illness and, and sometimes it's poverty. Sometimes it's um, just making a bad decision on who you spend time with and where that leads you. And so I think just that process of like, what is it? You're the sum of the closest three people you spend time with or something like that. I mean, things like that, those decisions are really key. So I think for me, I can't say that I've always made great decisions. <laughs> I've made some pretty bad ones um, in my life. I've I've made some that could have been uh, really tragic. You know, I mean, I, I made some in my first marriage that didn't. You know, I, I was I'm divorced, so that means it didn't end well. Um, and then, I, like at that point, I had a decision to make. Right, I could make a decision to for it to be worse, or I could make a decision for it to be better. You know, and. And I, I feel like I've chosen, you know, like with my children, I like, oh, I see sometimes men who will choose to move away and, and, um, or not be present. I can't even understand that. And so like the choice for me was like, again, I'm going to choose this because, you know, being divorced is probably not a great decision, honestly, you know, for your kids, it's going to hurt. Um, so what's the best thing you can do through that decision to make it as, as good as it could possibly be, you know? So I think about that a lot. I think about that in a lot of decisions, like decision making is, uh, it's a big deal, you know? <laughs> it's a, I mean, just simple things like deciding to pull out in front of somebody versus to wait for that person to pass you by, right? Like seems really simple, but that could be the difference in your life. You know, so so I, I I think that the idea of this one decision is a big deal, and I always relate that back to that that story of my grandfather. And I like to that point. You don't know what he was thinking, but you're taking the time to think through what this decision means, mm-hmm. and, and and you're referencing your children and the importance of of making a decision based upon what's best for them. Mm-hmm. You know, what can you do at this point? You, know, it, you are where you are, but what do you do now to do what's best for them? And, and that's like anything. It's not to say you're going to make every decision is going to be good because I have yet to meet mm-hmm. the person who's never made a bad decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is what do you do after and how do you make the most of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like a, an important point I would pull out of that is like because you made a bad decision doesn't mean you have to keep making bad decisions. You know, I mean a bad decision doesn't have to be followed up with another bad decision, you know? And, and sometimes like I, I've studied 
poverty and helped a lot in that, you know, and uh, just the community. And sometimes, you know, folks like we, we may make an assumption about someone in poverty as an example that they're making bad decisions. Well, they may be faced with three bad decisions. Like we, their, their only decisions may be three that in our world would look bad. Like, and they have to make a choice. What's the best bad decision? Like, sounds crazy, but like, what's the best bad decision I can make to move towards something better consistently, you know? And so I think, like I mentioned about divorce, like it's a really tough, challenging, I would not recommend it for anybody. Um, But that doesn't mean that you can't make good decisions on the back end of that. You know, that, that may have been a really tough, painful, maybe even it was a bad decision. But the decisions you make after that don't have to be bad. You know, I mean, I think that's your point in business. Like, you know, you can make a bad decision, but do you learn from it and start to make a good, better decisions as a result of that decision? So that's yeah. how I try to think about it. You know, I mean, I I still make a lot of bad decisions, you know, and so um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the bad decisions are decreasing while the good decisions are increasing through experience. <laughs> Similar background, my my father's family originated in in Scotland and came through Ireland coming to the US in 1800s and to your point I grew up in the same house my father was born in but there was this element and this kind of plays with people that I've talked to who have grown out of poverty and and gotten to a better place their parents were focused on what's best for the family and willing to do the sacrifices and to your point, make the decision. What's the decision I can make to help move forward? And there was this expectation that each generation, we would just get a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you want for your kids, right? I mean, I think, you know, and I think it's the same thing for like folks that I work with that um, are team members. Like, uh, so I look at, again, I'm taking my kids, you know, like I want, I was, I was at the doctor the day and, um, my son's 16 and he shared with my son that his growth plates haven't closed yet. My son's shorter than me. And he said, he'll probably be taller than you. And I said, Oh, I hope not. And I looked back at him later and I was like, Hey, I do hope you're taller than me. Like I do. It's actually, it was a joke. Like I, I hope you're taller. I hope you're stronger. I hope you're faster. I hope you're smarter. You know, I hope you're more successful. I hope you're a better husband. I hope you're a better father. Like, I don't want to have hubris um, in that way, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same thing with leading a business. Like, I love Jim Collins' statement. Like, you know, the best leaders know that they're not the smartest person in the room. You know, and it's uh, Liz Wiseman and the book Multipliers. It's like the same thing. Like, I think to be in, in decision making to be a great leader, it's like, how do you surround yourself with greatness? You know, that's what you want. You want people who are better than you in all the things, um, especially in the ways that you're not that good, frankly. Um, and I, I think too, as we get older, you know, like again, pushing at 50, like learning to continually let go is a, is a big decision that, um, I say it a lot, like I'm I'm less concerned about, um, was it form over function? You know, it's like how you get to the end result. Not super concerned about as much as the, that we get the right results, you know. And mm-hmm. um, and I think, again, that's the same thing with our kids. Like I, I was con- having a conversation with the guy this morning, like you, 
I think we have sometimes trouble moving from parents to friends, you know, and like, um, allowing like our dream for our kids is not always their dream. <laughs> and so, so, and I think that is the same with the business and with, with, uh, with folks that work for you, like everybody's wired and, and they're different and how do you maximize that and, and just celebrate that difference to the greatest end it can possibly be. Same with your kids. Like they're going to be like us, right? That's just, they're kind of, they're built. They're, you're a product of your environment, but man, I hope you're just such a better version than I ever was. It's my, my yeah, greatest hope and, for them. Yeah. And then letting them grow to be who they are. And like you said, in business, um, several years ago, I was in a sales organization and one of the salespeople in the company, we called him Hollywood because of his style and one of the things I learned through this whole process was not to confuse style with substance mm. and you know just following on on your point there here was this gentleman who inside the company was just always just kind of aloof mm. but I went on a sales call with him one time this gentleman knew more about what was important to his client he asked great mm. questions he was really there intending to do the very best he could for them and that was to bring the best of his company to them. And you know, all of a sudden it was like, don't confuse style. Mm. You know, the guy was kind of aloof. But in front of the client, he was superb yeah. in doing all the right things for the right reasons. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a big lesson there. Well, within yeah. your business, uh, I did take a look at your blog page. And I loved the one line because I think it's an important one. It was, uh, ideas are easy, execution is hard, or something like that. <laughs> So you can expand on oh, that a man. little bit. Oh, Lordy. <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, that's a lesson, um, for me, honestly, like, you know, I've been at this since, uh, in some way, shape or form, 1994 when I was 22 years old. Um, and, uh, I, I've always been gifted with, um, for, for whatever reason with pretty good vision, you know, like pretty good ideas on how to do stuff. Um, what I always lacked was the gift of execution. You know, I was, I was, uh, and, and I don't, I don't know that it's uncommon necessarily in entrepreneurs. I think that there's a, there's a lot of good starters and not good finishers, you know, and I think there's different types of people. There's, there's the people that, can consistently execute the same thing over and over. And then there's those of us that get really bored with that, you know? And so I realize, you know, now as I've, especially over the last probably six years, like the execution, the ability to execute is really where the magic is. You know I mean? That we're not devoid of ideas. Like the world is full of ideas. Um, and, and there's a lot of um, kind of companies, dead companies and dead ideas, largely because they failed to execute well. They they focused on the, the beauty of the idea and not the way to execute that idea consistently. I mean, it's the same with beta versus VHS, right? Like we've heard these stories over and over again. And some would say it's marketing, you know, and it, I think that's up for debate. But if you really look at, um, I mean, I take a look at the Apple story, right? Great vision, great ideas. Um, but Steve never was 
he never was uh, as brilliant or as excellent as he could be until that second time around when he really began to focus on execution, you know, and, and the, the consistent execution. He never stopped ideating, but he, but he really, you know, it was the Tim Cook that really took him to the next level inside of the business, the Johnny Ive, the people that could take the idea and, and really turn it into something real. So, so I say that a lot. I mean, I think, especially I think in the world of startups and the world of raising money and there's a lot of like, you know, look at me, look at me, look at my idea. And I, and I don't, I mean, I, I, ideas are important. Like that's the start of, you, you, there's nothing to execute if you don't have an idea, <laughs> so, you know, but the, but the question is, can you move from idea to execution, you know, and, and, uh, do you have a process for it? Do you have a way, do you have the people, um, because it, it's kind of, you know, Mark Cuban says you don't have anything if you can't sell it. And I totally agree. Like if you, if you have a product idea, but you can't get somebody to buy it, then you just have nothing. But once you get to that point and they buy it, you better be able to execute. <laughs> and so, and so I think there's a lot of strategic plans and stuff that have never met their full, um, potential because somebody got, you know, uh, distracted by the new shiny object or the next idea. Um, so my, I encourage people a lot, like, um, unless it's just going wrong, then the, you need to focus on the execution and, and get it, get it. Cause it's the, it's the ability to consistently do the same thing over and over again is actually where the magic is. I mean, it just is. Yeah. And you were you're going back to Steve jobs. One of the things that Steve jobs is quote from him and not exactly how he said it, but it goes around the decision you were talking about earlier. He has said, I'm more proud of what we decided to say no to versus what yeah. we did do. He said yes 100%. to. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot to do with ideas. Yeah. I mean, I think the two, two, two quotes I always think of him when it comes to that is that one and the other one that says, I'm always amazed, you know exactly how he said it, but I'm always amazed at how many overnight successes took 20 years to build, you know, and that's an example of like, you know, it's the people think the idea is where the magic was, but it was really the ability to turn the idea into something that could be consistently delivered and executed. Right? I mean, when you study the the Walmarts of the world or the Chick Fil A's, and you realize like how long it took them to expand stores and everything else because they wanted to get it right and do it well. And I love Truett Cathy's. Um, you know, quote that he had uh, when they were trying to convince him to expand and borrow money to expand and we need to expand. I think they were competing with Boston Market or something. And he said, no. He said, why don't we just really do a good job? This is a paraphrase. Why don't we just really focus on doing an amazing job? And then people will just demand that we expand. We won't even have to think about it. It'll just have to be something we have to do because we're so good at it and people are demanding us to go to this market and that market. I was like, man, that's brilliant. That act, that is really brilliant. That is a brilliant perspective. To your point, a lot of times, one of the things that, that I ask people to do, we need to create the ideas. The question is when we go to implement them, execute on them, what do we learn in that process? Mm -hmm. Was it a bad idea or was it the execution of the idea or was it some fine tuning of some component of it? And that's where we learn to become better leaders, better business owners, is that element of learning through that process. Mm -hmm. And that seems to when you were talking about decisions earlier and, and getting better, how 
want to ask from a perspective, from an organizational perspective, from your perspective, but from also from an organizational perspective, how do you actually take time to learn? Mm, me personally, or like if I was telling yeah, somebody Yeah, we start with you personally <laughs> and then taking time for, for uh, the business. Yeah. How does the business do it? I think for me, it's really, um, uh, I, it just for whatever reason, it's like an eight. You know, I was I was sharing with a, one of my uh, folks today, and we were talking about this, and I said, you know, for me, I, again, if I look back, it's just always been kind of a thing for me. Like, I was a baseball player, and um, good was never good enough for me, you know? So, like, if I had a season where I hit 330, then I was like, well, how do I have a season where I hit 350? What does that look like? Like, what are the videos I need to study or the books I need to buy or how much time do I need to spend with a tee or a soft toss? Or I just, that was just, so I, I can't explain it. Like for whatever reason, that's just me. Like I burn inside to gain knowledge and learn and get better. I think as an organization, it's really kind of hard uh, especially if you're like me, <laughs> because because then there's like, why isn't everybody like that? You know, and um, that's probably not a fair question because not everybody is like me. And if everybody was like me, we'd have a really weird organization that probably wouldn't get much done. <laughs> so, so we'd learn a lot, but we wouldn't make any money. We wouldn't accomplish anything. And so I think it's been a challenge. Um, there's some of it that's challenging folks to to get better. Um, I think they're, to me, like all these things come down to operationalizing them, you know, kind of like the ideas versus the execution. And, um, and I think you have to know yourself. I'm not an operational genius. I've been doing this long enough to know what it takes to do operations, but that's not what I'm good at. And so I would say... We've done some things that I would say are almost like gorilla, you know, like we do Friday training or we read a book and we review it, you know, and the, but those are not what I would say are systematized, operationalized, you know, ways to do that. And so I think that like if you, one of the things, again, I think about people, like one of the things I think about, and it's hard in a small business is unless it's somebody's responsibility, it's unlikely that it'll get done. You know, and so if it's if somebody has a job, it's like I talk about in IT, like if you give the job of IT to the office manager or to the engineer, on you know, the architect who's the sharpest guy with a computer or girl with a computer, but that's not their full time job, then it's never just going to be done really well. Right. And same thing with like, I think, uh, creating a learning culture, a learning environment, like ultimately somebody needs to own that side of it. Um, and so we are doing that now. Like we are, we're moving somebody into a role of people and talent and optimization. And part of that will be education and training and creating a culture that's around that. I think some people can do that in different ways. Like there's probably some leaders who that's just, they're really good at that. And that's the kind of way they build, you know, I've focused culture more on, on the type of, you know, culture we want to build and cultivating that. And it's been more about the experience and stuff like that. But uh, some people can imbue different things in culture and make it a part of it. So I think for me, it's innate. 
And because it's an eight, it's actually a weakness because I assume that everybody is just going to want to learn and get better. And that's a bad assumption. Um, so for us, what I realize is we have to operationalize it. We have to systematize it. It has to become somebody's, somebody has to own it, um, be passionate about it and really want to see it flourish. And that's as I've, as we've started to move in that direction, I see like how it's starting to really happen in the organization um, differently than when it's just the Paul assumption that everybody wants to read and get better. (laughs) That's a really good point because it's, 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 it's not innate in an organization, to your point. People are probably still learning, but are they learning from what they're doing? And how do you systematize that? Because before it can become habit and actually part of your culture, there has to be a process and somebody has to own it. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I think we do an okay job in certain areas. Like we do a pretty good job of getting people on board and them learning. And, and at, like the feedback we get from new team members would tell us that. And I think that... Because we have a fantastic culture where people really care about each other, there's um, there's just an, a, a strong sense of anybody will help you and anybody will teach you and anybody will help you get better. Um, and there's a strong sense of pretty good accountability that if you have made a mistake, that uh, not that someone will call you to the carpet on it, but someone will step in and help you work through how to do that better in the future. Um, we do some after action reviews on big things, you know, that when something really bad may happen, we'll probably, we'll take a deeper dive into it and share that as a team. You know, if we get any negative feedback, we kind of all rally around it. And, and so I think there's probably some things that I discount, like, as I think about this right now that I'm like, Oh, those are learning experiences. Those are things where, but the basic concept of like, systematizing and operationalizing a learning culture is the part that I think is, uh, is what's been missing, you know, organizationally for a while that, that I I've, we've all recognized we need to get better at. And so now we're again moving in that direction. Yeah. And it's part of the hiring process. You know, I remember many you know years ago when I was playing some basketball coach explained to explaining to us why we made the team. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily the best athletes, it was for, in his particular case, there was one, I mean, you had to be, you know, at least decent enough, not that I ever started, but, but there was this element of when you were in trouble, you raised your hand, you started, mm-hmm. so you had the ball, you started saying, you made it, you made it vocal, made people aware that you needed help. So you could find a passing lane, or if someone else was in trouble, you had to be observant and getting to a better place and letting them know you were there. And so it was this, mm-hmm. this whole thing about communications that was a really important part of what he pointed to is this is what we have to do as a team. Yeah. And I think playing team sports was a really valuable part of that is, is just learning first, you know, how do you bring the right people together yeah. and then making sure you, you re, you know, reinforce that. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, we, we, we always, I think, especially in america we use a lot of sports analogies and they're 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 really applicable because like in sports you you start with not knowing anything and you're taught the basics and you practice Mm -hmm. and you know you so that when the game comes you've got uh your season you're prepared you've got memory recall and you know i've learned a lot about um one of my daughters was really big into um musical theater and my other daughter, uh, both of them were in ensemble and they were, and then the other one was, um, 
in musical theater did another one that was a musical theater did kind of the background side of it like the props and all that stuff and all these things have that same application you know i mean there's really a lot of application to how you break something down to its simplest parts teach somebody the basics hold them accountable to the results that are expected um you know, it all works as a team. You can't have an ensemble like with all bases. <laughs> like you need, you need tenor and soprano. You know, you need all these different voices, but they need to sing at different pitches and levels. I don't understand all of it. You know, same with musical theater or just theater. Like, so I think there's just a lot. There's a lot of application in that that we can apply to business of like building a team, creating fundamentals. You know, creating accountability. Accountability doesn't have to be embarrassing. You know, it doesn't have to be painful. Um, it just has to be expectations. And, and we call it here, we're working on something, you know, as an organization. We call it our five-point alignment um, from a health perspective. You know, but, but the most important part is the idea of psychological safety so that there's vulnerability. You know, and so if you create a culture of psycho, and I think that's, in sports, I know for me, like that was the best coaches created really good psychological safety where we didn't fear the accountability that came with getting the results that were expected, you know, and I think that's the same. But the opposite of that is you do have toxic coaches who you fear those that the wrath, you know, of that. And so I think that in business, like that, again, is a big one. Like how do we create psychological safety and vulnerability so that um, people feel comfortable with the accountability and they'll actually raise their own hand. Like you said, like, Hey, I need help. I, mm -hmm. I'm not doing a good job in this area and I could use some help. That's a, that's huge. Yeah. I think it's so important. And I can't refer to people working for me, but I can't refer to working for a person I worked for many years ago and very successful breadth and depth and you know, knowledge of what she had in running the business. Very tough person at times to work for, but I never question her desire to help me be successful or their desire mm -hmm. to do the right thing. And, and even though she was yeah. frustrated with me uh, from time to time, and I was frustrated with her, we kept working through it because we trusted each other's values. And trusted that each other wanted yeah. to see the other person succeed. That's so, good. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seventh grade, seventh grade middle school coach Barry Rose was wearing me out. And I got so mad at him. And I was like, why do you keep picking on me? And he said something really powerful. He goes, Paul, if I didn't think that you were capable and better than what I see, I wouldn't even bother with it. But because I know that there's there's a lot more in you and I see the potential in you, that's why I'm doing that. And I was like, man, that make, that actually, that makes a lot of sense, you know. Mm -hmm. And it actually was, you know, like, he was basically saying, you're valuable and I'm just trying to get the most out of you. That's why I'm really pushing on you. So it's similar to your, I think, your situation. Like, understanding that, oh, you just want the best for me. You see something in me. Messaging that is a big is a big deal. It's so important, and as leaders, we have to be observant to to recognize when we're pushing someone, when we need to have that extra conversation mm -hmm. with them, to okay. recognize when they're resisting because they think 
we're not trying to help. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think mm-hmm. communication, again, psychological safety, I mean, people understanding you have their best interest. A lot of it is not what you say, how you say it, you know, and saying it in a, you know, um, sometimes calling it out like, hey, what I'm about to say is really hard and I'm, I don't, I don't mean it to sound, you know, with any type of edge other than it's important and, you know, people respond. They understand. And it gets something we all, you know, strive for, look, keep learning from and, and keep getting better at. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about where you, where you want to go. Uh, Personally or professionally, <laughs> or, or all of the above. I think they're kind of connected. <laughs> I know. I, know. Um, I have a pretty good sense of it. I mean, I think again, um, over the past couple of years, as I have approached fifty, and I have young kids again. So I have a three and a half year old and a two year old, and then I have these, you know, two adults and and still a, a teenage son. Um, I've definitely started to think a lot more like we always do as we get older about what that future looks like, especially as I, I, you know, face the reality that that I probably have less years alive than I, than I did, (laughs) you know, like I'm on the backside. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, we, we really spent a lot of time thinking through, so I'll just, I'll use the company as a temporary example of like recasting, the vision of the company and we changed it really which is rare to change the vision but we changed the vision to really hit the heart of what we're trying to do which is to build a great lasting enduring company that will outlive its owners and i i went that we really settled there because in and don't i don't want anybody to hear me wrong if you want to build a company to sell it then that's fine you know, I've watched, just watched a lot of people do that. And, and the person that sells it and, and rides off into the sunset is in a really great place. And the people that get left behind are not. And, um, that's your prerogative as a business owner to do that. Um, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. You know, I think I want to build something that lasts, um, and lasts for a really long time in my family and so, so that has set us, you know, my wife and I, um, we own this company and then we own Hard Knocks Pizza. And so that has really set us off on a trajectory of really thinking through what that means. And um, so I think that um, from a company perspective, like to me, it's steady growth um, focused around being a profitable company that delivers really good results for its customers, you know, and so I... I really believe we're reading a reading a book called Winning on Purpose, and I really believe strongly in his his concept of like we exist to enrich the lives of other people, and we can do that through technology, and we can do that through helping people be successful through technology. So I want to keep that front and center in our organization, and so um, I, I'm not trying to build a fifty million dollar organization, and no, nor am I trying to stay a five million dollar company. Like I, I just want to grow steadily and profitably, and hand, and care for our employees really well, deliver spectacular results for our customers, be well known in the community as a respected company who contributes to the health of the of its people and the health of its community, in in all the ways that we we can, you know, and, and then the second piece of that is as a family, we really began to think through our legacy, 
not um, in the community perspective, but like, what does it look like to transition things to our kids and how do we set them up well for the future? Um, Not how do we make them rich? That's actually not what we want to do. We want to help them know how to fish. You know, how do we, and, and we may provide them with financial tools that other people don't have because of what we've been blessed with and gifted with and have worked hard for. Um, but we want to teach them how to shepherd those tools really well, how to care again for the community, how to carry on what we would consider to be the legacy of our family of investing in the lives of others and, and trying to put a hand out to pull people up who maybe don't have the same opportunities that we have. Um, so I think that's a big focus for us. I mean, we have two small children, so, um, we kind of have a chance to do, to take all the lessons that we learned (laughs) in the, I'm sorry, Savannah, Samantha and Alex, I love you, but you were, you were definitely a little bit of training. (laughs) And so, so, um, uh, and, and so we hope that, you know, with Hartley and Easton that we, um, do it just a little bit better, you know, than we did with the other, the first three and, um, but we hope that all of them end up like we talked about, like just better than we are, you know, and, and, uh, we want to be good stewards of that with them, you know, equip them, teach them, create a platform for them to be able to do great things for their, their families and for the, for the community and for the world. You know, that's, that's our heart. Packed a lot into that last little <laughs> group there. Uh, <laughs> The one thing I wanted to bring out and just highlight because it's something I truly believe in. I remember when I was living in Atlanta back in the 80s, the then CEO chairman of Genuine Auto Parts was interviewed. And he had been in the military, grew up in South Georgia, was a parts, put parts on the shelf and ultimately became CEO chairman of, of this company. And he made this comment I said, we deprive our children of the things that made us great. Hmm. And to your point, it's about really giving them the tools, the drive, all the things that, that help them versus giving them the, the side benefits of what you have. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a, I think you had a great story that just you know supports that. And I, my wife and I have always thought about that. It's really hard. I mean, I think that it's easy to give your kids money. That's actually really easy. It's hard to really think about um, how to do that well. And I think it's really hard to prepare them how to do that well, you know, because the, the tendency could be, well, you have a lot of money and why didn't you give that money to me, <laughs> you know, versus um, I want to teach you how to leverage that in a way that benefits our family, your family, our family's future, your family's future, and the community. Like, that is really powerful if you can do that, you know? And um, But doing that in a way that also doesn't make them feel like they've been marginalized or slighted or... Because I've heard that too. I've heard, you know, of families that have done it really bad. So I don't... I don't know that we'll get it 100% right, but I I hope that our kids hear our heart that that's our goal, is not to take anything or, or hold something above them as much as to equip them in a way that, you know, allows them to do the most good 
they can do for their family and for their and for our community and i keep saying that community like that's an important part to us for our kids is like you're a part of a community and and it is our obligation as a part of a community to invest in that community to help other people who don't have what we have it doesn't mean handouts it doesn't mean that you're a savior that's actually the opposite of that it means that you are a resource for doing good you know mm-hmm. um and and that may be your time and that may be your talent and that may be your treasure and you've got to figure out which one of those you can invest and to your point earlier we are the sum and the average of that community Amen. and and our contribution to it becomes sometimes while it's not seen it's invaluable Mm-hmm. And it's it's a, a critical piece that if we can all learn we and, and learn how we can help. I have a good friend who, you know, he's now close to eighty. He still spends time with illiterate adults, teaching mm-hmm. them how to read. That's his yeah. it's his ability to do it. Other people do contribute, you know, money or supplies or whatever. Other people contrib- contribute time. Other people create jobs yeah. uh, for people to work in, and That's it's right. just. There's just, there's just a whole variety of things that we can do to help. Yeah, there is. There's, there's no shortage of opportunity. Before we wrap up, is there, a, is there a nugget that if you were to share with any other business owner, uh, and then I want to, you know, before, I, before we go there, think, have a chance to think about it, a nugget that you can share with other business owners. Before I want to go there, I just want to say, Paul has a podcast. What is your podcast? It's called Made Right Here. Made Right Here. And yes. where can we find that? It's on um, Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora. It's on all the platforms. It's uh, the, You can go to maderighthere.co um, in the browser. It's there as well. Um, our, ours is telling, is telling the stories of the founders, builders, and creators of companies. Um, maybe the ones that we may not know as much about. Mm-hmm. in Knoxville and how they're impacting how their stories uh, of their own personal stories have impacted their business stories and then how that's impacted their families and the community and the businesses. So it's fun. I love doing it. It's one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. And you are on a very similar path with that. And again, I greatly appreciate you being here Thanks. on this podcast because to yeah. me, it's not about a lot of people think about it's competition, but it's not. No. It's about how do we help yeah. each other, and it's about yeah. helping our community. How do we help bring out? That's right. Because you and I could both interview people for the next three, five, ten years and not get to them all. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's going to sound different. You're, you're, what you're going to ask and yours and what I'm doing are going to be different stories and um, different angles of those stories. And mm-hmm. So, you know, people that I've had on have been on other podcasts, you know. So it's to me it's not about competition it's like you said it's just what is it rising tides float all boats or something (laughs) correct (laughs) correct that's great good so a A nugget nugget. oh man a nugget a nugget yeah i uh so many um i should write a book at some point or or maybe a a bulleted list book (laughs) of things um you know one i think one of the things you know, I, I would speak to people who maybe are more like me. That might be helpful. Um, folks who are more on the idea, the innovation, the creation, 
Um, you know, I, I would say it's been really in the past five or six years that I've become a really good, um, like, I don't know, operator is the right word for it, but like, it's been the past five or six years that I've really understood how to run a business. Like, I think previous to that, I knew how to grow a business and I knew how to put people together and I had like all these innate things that I was good at, but like really running like the idea versus execution. That's like my story. You know, it's like the ability to execute. And I don't give myself a lot of credit for that. I mean, I, that's the only credit I have is recognizing en- enough times of failure that I couldn't do it. <laughs> and then I needed, I needed the right people around me um, to be able to execute that. So I think that probably leads to the answer, which is a cliche um, a little bit, but definitely people. Um, and I did, we did write a blog or maybe I posted on LinkedIn about this. And I think that some people try to silver bullet this, like, oh, you, the first person is a, is a sales leader, the first person's an operations leader, the first person is a finance leader. That, you know that that's the first person you need to add to your to the to the leadership to help you or whatever. And I, and the answer to that is I think it depends. Um, and I, I would tend to say that um, finance is one of the most important ones. Because if you're the creator and the inventor, you probably understand how it should be done. And you probably are the best sales and marketing person out there um, in a, when you're small. But understanding how you make money from a profit perspective is like top of the list. Like not because you need not because of greed. I want to be really clear about this. Like not because you're trying to hoard as much money and be greedy and get rich. Like if that's your ambition, that's a different thing altogether. Um, but because you can't have a business if it doesn't make money, like it just, it's not, it's not appropriate. It's not, it's not right. Like you have to have a profitable entity to be able to do the good things that you want to do. Like if you have a great idea now, let's just, because people are going to argue and say, well, you know, these startups and, you know, their market caps. And that, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about the average small business in America, not people that are trying to go raise a bunch of money and go public or sell to private equity. That's not what I'm talking about. Those are different. Um, so for me, my suggestion is understand really keenly who you are and what your greatest superpower and skills are. And then lean into the areas where you need the greatest help, you know? So that doesn't mean you hire a CFO. Maybe it's fractional. My CFO doesn't work for me. She's a fractional CFO. My CMO is fractional, you know? So like you can find those resources. So, but that's the thing I think of the most, like if you have a business and you, you can probably sell it, you can probably convince somebody to buy what you're selling because it's your idea and you're the most passionate about it and all that stuff. But if you can't figure out how to make it, profitable it's going to be really hard really really hard and i can speak you know for days about how to how to lose money <laughs> that is losing money is easy most, yeah making money is hard <laughs> yes <laughs> it just i mean it's easy to lose money that's one of the most important lessons that I, that most business owners who have been in business for a while have figured out and so that's a really good point yeah. one other thing and i know this mm-hmm. you have this perspective of an ideal client and not to know who it mm-hmm. is, but why it's so important to know who that best client is because there are clients that just aren't good fits yeah. for whatever reason. I think that, you know, um, 
on the way up to, and, and I, I think some of this is stages of maturity, like, and that's just part of growing a business is when you're brand new, you have a pretty immature business and you're going through stages of maturity. You know, it's like chaos and survival up to an optimized business, right? And so when you're starting, it's just chaos and survival. That's like just what it, and in that stage, a lot of times you just kind of have to take different clients to some extent to figure out what is an ideal client. Like I always joke about this. It's like, I think I'm right. What I don't know is where I'm wrong. How else am I going to find out where I'm wrong unless I go do it or I bring other people in who have done it and can tell me where I'm wrong? Like, mm-hmm. my ideas are pretty good. Like, I wouldn't be where I'm at 30 years down the road if I didn't have pretty good ideas. Like, it's the execution. <laughs> and that's the part that I didn't, like, I know I'm right about this. I just don't know what I'm wrong about. <laughs> and so... And so it's like ideal client. Like we have slowly gotten to the point where we have a very, very clear profile. So, I mean, we know exactly what it is and we say, no, I just, I, before this call, I was talking to someone that filled out a form on our website and, and I was j- just kindly listened and gave me budget. And I told her a little bit about us and we were at budget and we're not aligned. And, but I'll give you some names of people who are great fits, you know, for you. We've grown more since I started doing that than when I would just take it, than when we would just take anybody. But I had to take anybody to understand who I needed to take. Does that make sense? Like that, I think there's a journey there of maturity that you get to. There is a journey, and, and, and that, that ideal can change over time. Working with a, a technology yes. company several years ago, they had a, a new VP of sales come in and, and started the process of chasing smaller businesses because that's where he thought the, the new opportunities were. But when you start taking a look at what their minimum engagement was and you start looking at these companies, so many of them never made the cut because they couldn't afford them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know who can help you with that? A finance person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like Back to my point of like, you as the leader can intuit that we should go down because the market's bigger and it's wider and there's more opportunity. Okay. Well, at what scale do you have to do that to make it make sense? You know, you should know that before you just start like doing it. (laughs) Sometimes it's just so obvious in their case, their, their minimum engagement was a half a million dollars and preferably they were two, three, four, $5 million engagements, but that was a half million, but they were going after companies who didn't have a half million dollars in profit. But really having that person who looks at the finances and says, yeah. hey, based upon where you're at, based upon where you can go, this is the kind of things you need to be focused on, it yep. really helps a lot. So. Well, and understanding that you don't, they don't have to say no. They just have to inform you so that you mm-hmm. can make an educated decision. And I, and I think the, if you haven't read, like a good nugget, if you haven't read Great by Choice by Jim Collins, like yes. his whole concept on fire bullets before cannonballs arguably to me is one of the best business concepts that you could ever, if you just read that chapter and you just adopted that philosophy of how to fire a bullet before a a calibrated bullet or use the bullets to calibrate and then fire a calibrated cannonball. I think it would save business leaders millions of dollars by just like, it's just, just small bets here and there and then figure out if they work. And if they work, make another one and make another one and make another one. And then you can fire that that big cannonball but so many yeah. people me included in the past would just be like cannonball oh wow look at that we just 
blew up the wrong building. (laughs) (laughs) It was not supposed to be the building we blew up. (laughs) Uh oh. (laughs) Well, all I can say is really enjoyable conversation. Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate your openness on this, and you know that's the way I think we can help our community. That's one of the ways we can help our community. Again, I can't say enough about uh, how quickly you you responded and how appreciative I am. And and this was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. It's an honor to be asked. It's an honor to be on. And and, uh, always appreciate you and your friendship. So I appreciate it.